Hebrews 12, verse 1, we read the following. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I understand that that is the, the verse that God breathed right after he breathed the awesome roll call of faith that we read in Hebrews chapter 11. A roll call that tells of the journeys of faith God's Old Testament heroes like Noah and Abraham and Joseph, Gideon, Rahab, Moses, and many other heroes like the one we're looking at today, David. Now I've always found Hebrews 12.1 to be incredibly inspiring because of the, the powerful picture that it paints. Therefore, since we, we are, it's happening now, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now, let's say that together on three. Therefore, I didn't say three. <laughs> One, two, three. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Father God, we love you. And we are so grateful that you are jealous for us, that you love us, that you pursue us, that you want us, that you, like Jacob, that you chose us, and that we are your special possession. And that in you, God, no matter what we face, that you make us brave, that you enable us, Lord, to, to leave the shore and to go out on the waves and to, to live in ways beyond ourselves. And, and God, I, I pray this morning that as we, we look at a hero of today, we look at David God, that you will open up our hearts and our minds, and, and God, that we will glean whatever truth you have for us. And God, I, I pray that you open our hearts, our minds. God, may we, we hear this story fresh. God, may we believe and know. God, may we lean in actively, Lord, knowing that you brought us here for a reason, and, and knowing that you're a God who's alive, and that, God, that you still speak today to your people. And so God, help us to hear whatever you would like to speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I, I want you to envision a, a stadium or a coliseum that is filled with thousands of cheering fans, kind of like you would see at a professional sporting event or at the Summer Olympics, which, by the way, begin in less than two weeks. And, and listen, the point that, that God is making through the writer of Hebrews is, is that in a very real way, just as those Olympians are surrounded by cheering fans, that you and I also are surrounded by a huge crowd of fans, of, of people, of faithful men and women. I understand that is exactly the picture that, that God wants us to visualize in our hearts and in our minds. A stadium like the one that will pop up on the screen, a stadium full of men and women of faith who've gone before us and who are cheering us on, rooting for our success in the, in the race of life. You see, they have, they have run their race, and, and now it's our turn. It's Maple Grove. We are on the track, and they are on the stands, cheering us on, 
empowering us, inspiring us, encouraging us, challenging us, offering us wisdom. John Maxwell writes, do you wonder what those hearers of faith might be saying? When a crowd cheers, you can't distinguish one voice from another. But what if individuals could step out of the crowd, come down onto the track where you are running, and jog a lap with you? What would they say to you? Their time with you would be limited, so how could they share in just a few words the most important lessons they had learned from their own life? What words of wisdom would they give you to encourage you and empower you? And Maple Grove, this is the purpose of our summer of 2016 series, Heroes, Amazing Stories of Faith, a series that, that I think I seriously underestimated its impact in my own life. I mean, this has been a fun few weeks. I understand since June the 19th, we, we have, as we've been on this track, surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, heroes like Noah and Moses and Daniel and Ruth and Gideon have left the stands and have jogged a lot with us, inspiring us, challenging us, warning us, encouraging us, and empowering us to never give up, to never quit, but to keep running with perseverance the race that God has marked out for each and every one of us. And listen, Noah, Moses, Daniel, Ruth, Gideon, they know about the obstacles. Uh, they know about the difficulties that will come against us because they have been there and they have run through that. Get it? Get it? Get it? All right. Let's amp it up a little bit here. If you're visiting, I, I, I need love. I need feedback, right? It, like a middle school dance, right? It's better when we all work together here, right? I need participation. And to get you out sooner, right? Because then I'm not here begging, right? All right. But understand, church, we really need to hear and to remember what these great men and women of faith have to say because the race that you and I are running is, is so much more important than the Summer Olympic Games or any other sporting event. Understand, our race is one that has eternal consequences for us and, and for countless lives that we come in contact with. Now this morning we're going to be unpacking a story that, that I'm confident that you are very familiar with. And, and in fact, it's a story that pretty much everybody knows. And whether they've been in church or not, you know, or whether they've read the Bible or not, almost everybody knows the story of David and Goliath. It's a story of a great and a very unexpected victory. In fact, this 3,000-year-old one-on-one contest is still used to summarize great upsets today. I mean, just the mere mention of these two opponents that faced off in 1 Samuel 17 lets everyone know without a doubt that a big upset has happened. You know, this week I, I Googled uh, you know, greatest sports upsets of all time. And, and here are a few that I found. Uh, some may be familiar to you. Here's the first one. This is uh, Seabiscuit and War Admiral. This was November 1938. Okay, and uh, War Admiral was a, three, was a triple crown winner. Uh, Seabiscuit was just, just a horse, right? 
but he was a horse that, that captured the hearts and minds of, of, of a nation, right? My mom actually lived across the track in Pimlico, and, and so she was there. And, and, and the whole nation that was trying to crawl out of the Depression and, and trying to believe again got behind this horse, and, and Seabiscuit beat War Admiral. Here's another huge upset that happened in 1969, Super Bowl three. You know, everyone would expect it, right? Yeah, the Baltimore Colts, Johnny Unitas would win, but, but, but Joe Namath, right? And the Jets won. It was a bad year for Baltimore because a few months later, uh, in 1969, the, the amazing Mets, right, would beat the Baltimore Orioles uh, in the World Series. That year, the Orioles won 109 games, but they didn't win. And I'm, I'm from Baltimore, if you're visiting. All right. Hey, right here, we, we, we got the uh, Rumble in the Jungle, 1974, Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. You know, we, we got the new ch- undefeated champ, George Foreman, just crushing people with his power. Uh, Muhammad Ali was 32, Foreman's 25, and, and uh, uh, Muhammad Ali was a 4-1 to one underdog, but we all, right, we know how that ended. Not, not so well. And then we have one of the famous ones, right, 1980. Uh, um, the, the Winter Olympics, Lake Placid, New York, the miracle on ice, as it is called, right, where, where the U.S. team beat, you know, beat the pretty much professional Russian hockey team that had won four straight gold medals in the Olympics and that had beat them 12-2 to a few weeks earlier in Madison Garden. But they go ahead and they win 4-2 to and, and, and go on to win the gold medal as well. Here's another upset here, Buster Douglas. This is February 1990. Buster Douglas, there's, Mike Tyson really never got up from the mat, right, after that. Um, he was a 42-to-1 underdog, and he knocked out the undefeated champ. Now, here's another upset you have right here. This is a 2004 NBA championship where the, where the Detroit Pistons beat the L.A. Lakers. The L.A. Lakers uh, were predicted to win. Uh, they have four, former, four future Hall of Famers were on their team. Uh, but they wind up only winning one game. And, and after game one that the Pistons won, the first game, here's what the USA Today had an, an article saying, okay? Underdog one, Goliath zero. The Pistons remind us why everyone loves an underdog. The team that wasn't supposed to win won last night. This is what America's all about, right? The triumph of the underdog. Already some fans are dreaming of a scenario that would make the Detroit Pistons seem like Norma Ray, Seabiscuit, and that slingshot-wielding dude, David, all rolled up into one. And just one more sports upset that I find particularly upsetting, okay? <laughs> uh, I, I, Super Bowl 42, you know, that catch. What is going on there? You know, 18-0, we want to go 19-0, and we wind up losing... The Patriots wind up losing 17 to 14. But it's not just in sports we root for the underdog. I mean, we all root it, right, for that spunky little fin fish named Nemo, right, as he escapes from the fish tank, as he rescues a huge net of fish. And who couldn't help cheering, right, when Rocky Balboa, right, beats Apollo Creed, Clubber Lang, and, and Drago, yo, Adrian, I did it, right? And we all cheered when the karate kid assumes the crane position, right, and wipes the smirks off those blonde hair boys. We all rooted and cheered when the Titans win the championship. And, and I cheered and cried when Rudy, right, runs out on the field in Notre Dame. Underdogs and upsets are both powerful and inspiring. And this morning, David is going to leave the stands just like Noah did and Moses 
and Daniel and Ruth and Gideon did the last few weeks, and, and David is going to run around with us around the track, and, and he's going to tell us how he was able to defeat his giant, Goliath. Okay, let's do this. Brothers and sisters, there are giants in the land. Got any? Now, I'm not talking about huge people, but rather I'm talking about huge problems, issues, hang-ups, hurts, habits, and obstacles that stand in the valley and that taunt us, intimidate us, frighten us. Question, uh, what is a giant? A giant is something that stands in the way. A, a, a giant is, is, something that, is something that keeps us from living the life that God has called us to live. A, a giant is something that keeps us from living a life that is abundant and full, that is free and satisfying. Now, maybe your giant is a relationship issue, something in your marriage, your family, or with a friend. Maybe your giant is an addiction, alcohol, drugs, food, sex, something, something that has, has a has a death grip on you and that is sucking out of you all that is good, telling you constantly that you will never be free from its grasp. Maybe your giant has something to do with the problem you're dealing with, a problem with your kids, your parents, your health, health of a loved one, and you're not sure how you're ever going to get through it. Maybe your giant has to do with money, finances, or the lack thereof. Maybe your giant is fear, loneliness, self-doubt, insecurity, lack of confidence or belief in yourself. Maybe your, your giant is something very painful that happened in your past, some abuse that happened to you or, or, or some mistake that you made, and, and this giant wants you to believe that your past and your pain will always be your identity. Maybe your giant is something you know that you need to do, a conversation that you need to have, a person you need to talk to, something you feel you need to do for God, but there is this huge giant in the way telling you that you can't do that, that you will never be that, that you should not give up that or make that kind of commitment. Giants paralyze us. They keep us in the hills. They, they keep us from living the life that God created us to live. And they keep us from experiencing God's mighty hand moving in our lives. And I'm pretty confident you know, that most people in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. You know what's in your valley. You know what keeps you living in the hills. I mean, you've heard their taunts more than once, telling you that you're better off where you are, telling you to forget about life in the valley, to forget about the dreams, to forget about living the awesome life that God has marked out for you, because for that to happen, you have to get past them, and they are Goliath, and you are just a shepherd. Now, we don't really like being stuck in the hills. I mean, we grow weary of all the fear and all the doubt, we're we're tired of seeing our dreams fade and our hope for a better way of life dim. And every now and then we're able to drag ourselves up and, and, and head down to the valley. But just as we reach the valley's edge, out comes the giant who seems to be getting bigger and bigger all the time. And he begins his taunting. That's for some, your giant's been taunting you, not for days, weeks, or months, but for years, for a lifetime. 
I mean, you've been living in the hills for so long that you're pretty confident that you, like your dreams, will actually die there. But listen, God brought you here this morning so that a guy named David could run a lap beside you and tell you how he stepped in the valley 3,000 years ago in one incredible moment that makes all the upsets I talk about already, talked about already look, look like a defeat in comparison, took out the giant in his life. His story is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Yeah, a familiar story. But I want to encourage you to, to hear it with fresh ears, to hear it with a fresh heart, with a fresh mind. Because I am convinced that God had Samuel put these words on paper so that you and I could discover how we can defeat our giants and live and run free in the valley as God intended. In the beautiful valley of Elah, there are two armies encamped on two hillsides with the valley between them. The diplomacy was over, the negotiation had failed, and these two armies are about to engage in battle. And during this time, Armies would give a signal, and then they would rust each other. Think Braveheart, okay? And whichever army was left standing would win all the spoils, land, money, possessions, people, everything. Now, this wasn't the first battle. I mean, God's people and the Philistines have been going at it for, for years. But this time, before the signal to charge was given, something, something happened. It was kind of unusual. And... and we're going to pick up the reading at verse 4. And remember, God, God wrote these words so that you and I can defeat our giants. And, you know, question, question what is your giant? You know, what's standing in the way of you being what you want to be, what you dream to be, what you hope to be, what God's called you to be? And think about that giant as we read. So the Philistines and Israelites face each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. Then Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistines' ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze, bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Goliath stood and shouted the taunt across the Israelites. Why are you coming out to fight? He called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. I understand that that, that is a very familiar taunt of a giant, right? I am the champion. I'm great. I'm powerful. And you are small. You are weak. You see, our giants love to tell us who we are. They love to define us. Don't let them do that anymore. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we'll be your slaves. But if I kill him, you'll be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send a man. He will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. In the next several verses, we read how, how David's father, Jesse, sends him to go check on his brothers and, and bring some supplies. That's how they did it back then, right? You wanted food, your, your, your family better bring it to you. So he said, hey, go check on your brothers. 
and take, take some pizza and some garlic knots with you because I know they're probably really hungry. Verse 16, for 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Verse 20, early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loading up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to do its battle positions, going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Woo! They're excited, right? We're going to go. We're going to fight. We're going to win. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from the lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. When Israelites saw the man, the same guys who were shouting a war cry, they all fled from him in great fear. Now, the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He'll also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy not the armies of Saul, because David had the right perspective, but the armies of the living God. They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him this will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the man, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? With whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? David, I, I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can I even speak? He turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the man answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. You know, let, let no one lose heart on account of this giant. For your servant will go and fight him. Turn to the person to your right and left and say, don't lose heart. If no one's near you, shout it to somebody. <laughs> don't lose heart. Now, now in these verses that we just read are two keys for defense for defeating our giant. And the first, to defeat our giants, we must what? We must face them. I know some of you are thinking, duh, right? Pretty obvious. We have to face our giants. But listen, for 40 days, the entire Israelite army refused to face Goliath. And, and notice, he, he didn't go away. He got worse. He, 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 got, he got bolder. In, in fact, by the time David arrives on the scene, Goliath had already challenged them 80 times. I understand, for 40 straight days, God's people both began their day and ended their night in fear and intimidation. Ever been there? You see, they kept putting it off. And the more they delayed, the more intimidated they got. And the more intimidated they got, the more impossible and hopeless their situation became. And listen, it's the same thing when you and I battle our giants. The more we delay in battling them, the more intimidating and hopeless the problem becomes. And the harder it is for us to deal with. But do you notice what David did? He shows up on day 41, sees the giant, 
he, he hears, hears the taunts and says, all right, I've heard enough. That guy has got to go. And the next morning, when Israel woke up, there weren't no giant to worry about anymore. But understand, it's not easy to face a giant. And though David made it look easy, it wasn't easy for him either. You see, for him to, to face his giant, David needed to overcome a few things, and so do we. First, we must overcome our fear. Understand, when facing a giant, when going up against something that looks in, like an impossible situation, fear is a legitimate emotion to have. Especially if your giant has been talking to you day and night for 40 days. I can't stress it enough. Fear is an okay thing to feel. David was facing something a whole lot bigger than him, a whole lot stronger than him. And I'm confident that as David took his staff and walked down into that valley, that, that, that Goliath started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And David's pulse started going faster and faster and faster and faster. David was afraid. Again, nothing wrong with being afraid. But the problem is when, when we let our fear keep us from doing what God has asked us to do. And in 1 Samuel 17, that's exactly what the army of Israel did. They allowed their fear of Goliath to stop them from doing what was right as they were consumed with the, you know, with the favorite two-word question of fear, right? What if? Yeah. What if Goliath wins? What if our nation becomes slaves? What if they take out our, take our land? What if I get hurt? What if? I die, right? Fear. What if the wrong person wins the election, right? What if? What if? What if? Question, has that ever happened to you? Has fear ever kept you from doing something that was right? Something you knew God wanted you to do? Uh, some people don't pray for one and share their faith because they are afraid of how people will respond. Uh, some people refuse to break off a relationship that is bad for them. Because they're afraid to be alone. And here's the definition of, here's my definition, you know, litmus test if a relationship is bad for you. You know, if it takes you further away from Christ, it makes you look less like Jesus, right? If any relationship is taking you further away from God, it makes you look more, less like Jesus, it's a bad relationship, you need to end it. Amen? Amen? Amen. <laughs> uh, some refuse to be transparent and confess their sins to another believer because they're afraid of what other people will think about them. Some never give back to God 10% of the resources or take on a new ministry for the Lord because they're afraid of what it might cost them. So some, some do not try a new thing that God has asked them to do because they're afraid that they might fail. And still others refuse to give up their style of relating with people, anger, intimidation, withholding forgiveness and acceptance because they're afraid of losing control. Yes, fear can be crippling, but it doesn't have to be. Listen to these words from God to his servant Joshua, who was giving the job to conquer the promised land. Be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified. Don't be discouraged. And this morning, God, God is saying to us, be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified. Don't be discouraged. I mean, he, he, he knows what you're going through. He knows the challenges. But God says, be strong and courageous. 
don't be terrified. Don't be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now, before I move on from here, let, let me say this. You can be afraid and still be courageous, right? See, courage is not the, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the absence of, of self. Courage is, courage is, is stepping into the valley and facing your giants, even though you're still afraid because you are moved by a purpose that is greater than you, you're moved by a purpose that is greater than you, that is greater than your own well-being. Defeat our giants, we must overcome our fear, and we need to overcome naysayers. You know what a naysayer is? Here, here's a definition. A naysayer is someone who systematically obstructs some action others want to take. You see, many times, once we pass the fear factor, we have to face the naysayer factor. And David had naysayers coming at him from nearly every side. His brothers even questioned his motives. Why have you come down here? With whom did you leave these few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are, David, how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. That's his brother Liab. Now, I, I tend to think he said that because David made him feel bad, right? Because he, he's up there shaking. He's afraid to do what God wants him to do. And David, his younger brother, wants to do the right thing, and he's not doing it, and he feels bad about it. David is making him look bad, and so he's challenging David and putting the blame on him rather than looking within himself. And check out what King Saul says to David in verse 33. David says, hey, I can do this. He says, you're not able to go against the Philistines and fight him. You're only a boy. And he's been a fighting man from his youth. And hey, aren't you, aren't you my heart player? And he's like, he's like I'm not going to send my heart player down to take on the nine-foot giant. I'm not going to put all my hope in a, in a heart player. Understand, when you decide to take on a giant, there are going to be people who will want to see you fail, who will want to see you fall flat on your face, people who want things in you to stay just as they are and just as they've been. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Understand, when you take a stand and say, I'm done with those behaviors that dishonor God, there will be people who will try to pull you back into those behaviors. When you... When you decide to go on that mission trip, there will be people in your life who may think that, you know what, that's a waste of time and a waste of money. When you decide to do something significant for God, there will be people, maybe close friends or family members, who will act out of love and say things like, you don't want to take on that project. It's too big. You're setting yourself up for failure. Or, I, I just don't want to see you get hurt. Are you... Are you sure you're ready for that kind of commitment? You should probably rethink that. Or, or you try to break that addiction and overcome that hang-up and achieve that dream for years. What in the world makes you think it's possible for you to do it now? But bottom line, if we want to step into the valley and defeat our giant and live in a better place, live a better way, we can't listen to the naysayers. I love what David did, what he said to his brothers. Now what have I done? Yeah. Can I even speak? And that scripture says, then he turned to someone else, right? 
You know, that's what we need to do. Now, when we want to do something and the naysayers are coming at us, we need just to turn to someone else, turn to someone positive, turn to someone who will encourage us to do the thing that God has called us to do. Because if you listen to the doubt of those around you, it will creep into your own life and into your own heart. And then you will become your own worst naysayer. Get it? Good. I mean, has anybody ever put out the, your fire to take on a giant? You need to turn to someone else. David ignored his brothers, ignored the king. One more thing you need to overcome, we've already kind of touched on it, but we need to overcome procrastination. The Israelite army never did this. Again, for 40 days, morning and night, Goliath taunted them, and each time their fear of him grew. I mean, I think by the time David got there on day 41, at least in the eyes of Israelites, Goliath wasn't nine feet tall. He was 900 feet tall. And they seem like grasshoppers in their own eyes. Brothers and sisters, face your giant today. Our giants will only get bigger if we delay. They'll only get bigger. To defeat our giants, we must visualize a reward. Now, there's an interesting couple of verses in, in our text. Now, the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage. He will exempt him and his family from taxes. David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes his disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They reported to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. Boatload of cash, hand of the princess, and no taxes for you and your family for the rest of your life. Now, now these three verses rarely get much play in sermons or in Bible lessons. We just kind of ignore them, and I think it's because as Christians, we, we, we want to spiritualize everything. And we know that David took on his Goliath because of his faith in God, and at least in our, our minds, it kind of taints things if there was an additional reason for going into the valley. But David asked, hey, what does a guy get who kills the giant? Answer, boatload of cash, handed a princess, exempt from taxes for the rest of his life. Understand, David went down into the valley armed with his faith, but also thinking about a reward. Get some money, get some princes, get, some, get a prince and no taxes. See, to defeat our giants, we must visualize the rewards of victory. Question, what would your life look like if your giant wasn't there, if it wasn't standing in your way, if it was no longer in your life. I mean, can you picture what would happen in your life, what your relationships would look like, who you would become, where you would go, what you would do, how you would feel, the peace you would experience if the first thing in your morning and the last thing at night wasn't this giant rumbling in your landscape. We, we need to visualize the reward, visualize our life free from giants. Imagine what your life would look like if they were gone, gone for good. But unfortunately, here, here's what happens. We, we get to the point where we accept and get used to our giants. 
And we learn to live with them. And the limitations they put on us, and we just kind of exist. Uh, back in the 1950s, some researchers did an experiment. They took a 200-gallon aquarium, and they put in a northern pike, a, a fish, and every day they would dump in some minnows, the favorite food, a pike. And I guess for pike, it's pretty good life, right? <laughs> I, got a pretty, I got a big fish tank to swim in. Whenever I'm hungry, they dump in a bunch of minnows. Well, then one day, they divided the tank in with, with plexiglass. And so the pike's on one side, the minnows are on the other. And the pike is hungry, and he did what any fish would do. What we do? Boom! He runs to the side, smack, runs right into the glass. I don't know how many times he did it. You know, it was a man pike, did it a lot. Your female pike probably hit it once and got, got a clue, right? You know, but eventually he figured out, hey, you know what? This is not working, and my head is really hurting. I ran out of ibuprofen. You know, it's just not good. And so he just started swimming around in circles. Then... Eventually, they, they removed the plexiglass. And now the pike and the minnows were free to swim anywhere in the tank. And guess what happened to the pike? It starved to death. It, 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 with its favorite food swimming around him, bumping its underbelly, being able to see this food, but being conditioned to believe that this food was no longer possible or available to him. So he starved. And, and, you know, I, I'm often amazed at how you and I have been conditioned to believe that we cannot do battle with our giants. How we've been conditioned to believe, you know, this is just how my life is. Uh, other people seem to be able to do it. I can't. Uh, other people seem to be able to have God work in their lives. It just don't work for me. Other people seem to be able to get rid of their issues. I'm just stuck with mine. Brothers and sisters, if we believe the Pike principle, the opportunities before us, and the possibilities of what might be, even though they bump up against us all the time, we're going to believe that they're impossible and unavailable to us, so we keep swimming around and circles, and living the way we always have lived. But David didn't swim that way. D David kept his eye on the princess. He kept his eye on the reward. He knew there was something better for him if he could just get rid of the giant. So armed with what he has, he heads down the hillside and faces the giant. Maple Grove, to defeat our giants, we must face them. We must visualize the reward. I mean, aren't you just sick and tired of these giants and their taunts and their intimidation? Aren't you tired of the, the limitations that they put on your life and who you could be in Christ? We also must anchor our confidence in God. David goes down to fight Goliath, and Goliath does some trash talking. Come here, little boy. You know, come here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feed your flesh. Well, you don't usually don't put that in the flannel board in, you know, in, in the toddler class, right? Yeah, I, I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds of the air and the wild animals. And a little trash talking. And then David goes, oh, man, you ain't seen trash talking. He says, I love this. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, 
But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. Then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, and not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to me. And Goliath had to be freaking out big time. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David ran out to meet him. Reaching into a shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling, hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in. Goliath stumbled, fell face down to the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then he quickly borrowed his sword. Then David ran over, pulled Goliath's sword out of his sheath, and used it to kill him and to cut off his head. Listen. David's faith and confidence was in God. It, it wasn't in his armor. It wasn't in his sling. It wasn't in the stone. It wasn't in his ability. You see, David headed down in that valley confident that God was with him and confident that, that the life that God had for him was not one of living in fear and intimidation. David knew that, hey, that's not where God wants me to live. That's not how God wants me to live. You, you see, to David, all that mattered what really mattered was not the size of his giant, but the size of his God. Now, I, I, I don't know what giants you're facing in your life, but I do know this, that you will never step into the valley and face them and defeat them if your God is too small. Instead, you'll be just like the Israelites, hiding in the hills, afraid, because your God just ain't all that big. One of my favorite authors and theologians, A.W. Tozer, writes these words. Christianity at any given time is strong or weak depending upon her concept of God. I insist upon this, and I've said it many times, that the basic trouble with the church today is her unworthy concept of God. Our religion is little, because our God is little. Our religion is ignoble, not honorable in character and person, because the God we serve is ignoble. We do not see God as he is. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. We need a big God to face big giants. But how do we make our God bigger? How do we translate that knowledge into real life? And, and David, as he's getting near the end of the track, say, hey, here's two things that help make my God bigger that will help make your God bigger. Why was David God so big? Because... He remembered his past victories. Listen, so often when facing our giants, we forget what we ought to remember, and we remember what we ought to forget. We remember our defeats, and we forget our victories. I mean, most of us can recite our failures, 
our mistakes, the way we blew it. I mean, we're like, can I have some more paper, right? But when it comes to listing our victories, we have a whole lot more difficulty. Not so with David. I mean, when the king is freaking out, said, David, how, what makes you think you can take on this giant, right? And what does he say? Here's why. Uh, here's what I know. I, I know that when I was tending sheep and a lion or a bear threatened them, I would chase the lion or the bear. I, I love, this is crazy, right? I mean, bears and lions weren't used to being chased. He said, you know, I would chase that lion or bear. I would catch it by its jaw. And I would club it to death. I mean, David is one mean shepherd, right? I mean, I love the picture. I just love the picture. The bear's like, what is going on? This is not the way the script was read in. David says, you know, if God God gave me power to protect sheep and showed up to protect sheep, he will certainly show up to protect his people. Brothers and sisters, victories are significant. Remember them. Check out Samuel 17, 54. David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, basically saying, hey, I'll be back for you guys later. And he put the Philistine's weapons in his own tent. Question, where do you keep your victories? Do you quickly pass over them and forget them? Break that habit. Now, understand, God doesn't want us to waste his victories. And, and when God pulls off something that only he can do, he looks at us and says, don't forget that one. Don't forget that one. You know, the Old Testament, many times what people would do is they would gather up a huge pile of stones of remembrance. You know, God would do something great. They'd go, hey, we got to remember this. And they would grab these stones and say, hey, you know what? Something happened right here, something powerful, something special, and, and, and I want to remember it. I think that's why David kept Goliath's weapons in his tent, right? Yeah, I think, I think many times he would look at them, all right, it's hard right now, but you know what? I'm holding that sword, and God showed up. God showed up then. I mean, what about you? Has God ever showed up in your life? Has God ever delivered you from something that was about to take you under? Has God delivered you from a, from, maybe from a tough past or from an addiction or health or financial hardship, uh, from the death of a loved one, from a very difficult divorce? I understand, we need to set up our own stones of remembrance. If we want to be God, remember your past victories. And not only that, you know, remember the past victories of others. The scriptures are full of victories, Right? Of, that God had brought for his people. And guess what? You know, other, God is still alive and moving in people's lives. He's doing that today. If God was there for Moses and Joshua and Gideon, then God will. If God was there for Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Esther, Ruth, Rahab, Naomi, then God, he was there for them, then God will be there for you. Amen? He'll be there for you. The second reason David God was so big was because David pursued a deep relationship with God. You see, David knew who God was. He knew that God could be trusted. He knew that God would always protect and always deliver his people. Why? Because David knew God. David was a, a man who was after God's heart. 
He pursued God. He pursued a relationship with God. You know, David knew who God was. And because David pursued God, because he hung out with him, here's what he knew about God. And you see, here's the deal with Christianity. It's not about you knowing stuff about God. That's fine. But the real point is you knowing God, right? Is you knowing God. God wants you, it's about a relationship. God wants you to not just know facts about him. He wants you to know him, have a relationship with him. Because David did, he said this in 2 Samuel 22, right after God delivered him from the hands of Saul. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. He is my refuge, my savior, the one who saves me from violence. I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise, and he saved me from my enemies. Amen. Hey, would you guys stand? And I want us to read that together on three. One, two, three. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. He is my refuge, my savior, the one who saves me from violence, I called on the Lord, who's worthy of praise, and he saved me from my enemies. Amen. You can be seated. David's God was big, huge, because he remembered his past victories and the victories of others. He pursued a relationship with God. Question, are you? Are you doing those two things? Are you remembering your past victories? You know, I would encourage you, if you would, this week, if God's ever showed up and done something in your life, they go, whoa, that's really awesome. That was God. He came to my rescue. You know, shoot me an email and tell me about it. Steve at thegrovesevil.org. I want to share some of them next week so that we know that, hey, guess what? You know, uh, when, when God finished writing the Bible, like, he didn't, like, retire, right? You know? Our God is alive and active and doing stuff today. He's moving in the lives of people today. And so I want you to email me and just tell me. And then we've got to share that. Remind ourselves that we serve a God who's alive and active and moving. A God for whom all things are possible. Amen? And then are, are you pursuing a relationship with God? You know, I mean, and the way you do that, right, it, it, you know, it, it sounds like you would expect in church, right? We read the Bible, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, I mean, if, if you never, if for those of us who are married or have any relationship, you know, you know, you know if, you, if you and your spouse never talked, ever, never had a conversation, you didn't write notes, letters, tweet, whatever, had no communication with each other at all, what kind of relationship would you have? <laughs> you wouldn't have one. You wouldn't have one. And so if you're, you don't read the Bible, I'm not, here to, you know, I'm not here to beat you up. I'm here to tell you God's Word can lift you up, right? I want to encourage you to be in the Word. You know, we do something here called Faith Comes From Hearing. A new one comes out this week. I think we have copies in the foyer. It's on our website, and we just read a chapter a day, you know. Um, we got through Mark and a bunch of Psalms. I read, Psalms. I read Mark 16 today, the resurrection. Wow, Jesus is not in the tomb, right? 
You're not going to find him there. You're not going to find him in the darkness and despair, right, because he's alive. And it, it was very encouraging. But I, I want to encourage you, you know, give it a shot for the, for the next month, right? Give it a shot. Say, you know what, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the Bible, and I'm going to try to listen to God's voice. I'm going to pursue him. And as you do, I guarantee as you pursue that relationship, you get to know him, and you hear about you remember your victories, and you share the victories of others, your God will get bigger and bigger and bigger, and you'll want to go down into that valley. Let's wrap this up. Imagine with, if you would, that it's morning, and the mist is breaking, and you see him again. It's that giant, the one who's taunted in your valley for years. And do me a favor, and just close your eyes. Can you see that giant for what he is? For how ugly, for how disruptive, for how much chaos it has created in your life and the lives of the people around you. Then can you picture what your life might look like if that giant wasn't there? Whatever the issue, whatever the problem, whatever that thing is, can you see what your life would be like if it was gone? And then can you hear him? Now, maybe it's hard to hear him because there are so many other things that crowd out his voice, but can you hear him say to you, I love you, you're not alone, I am with you, and there is an amazing and awesome race, an amazing and awesome life that I have already marked out for you. You can open your eyes. Brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned shame, and now is seated at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition so that you may not grow weary and that you may not lose heart. Would you stand and pray with me? Father God, we love you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for being with us and loving us and choosing us and calling us your treasure possession. And God, I just pray for everyone in this room, God, that we will listen to the the wisdom and counsel of David, that we will face our giants, that we will visualize that reward of them being gone, and that our hope and our confidence will be fully anchored in you. God, help us to leave this place. Help us not to settle for life less than the one Jesus won on the cross for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.